cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And I am Ramon. And Jonathan, it's... Uh, and are you present? I am quite present at the moment. It's been quite a while since we've been in the studio. For the listeners who are unaware, Jonathan had some a holiday in October. Shock horror. Yeah. The typical Jew. Doesn't do it at Christmas. Has to do it before. Jeez. Has to do it before. Christmas yeah. means nothing go to straight, you people. Go straight there. You people. Yes. Us people. Yeah. Yeah, you people. No, nothing. Um, no, some of us have to work because some of you drink a lot on Christmas and thereabouts. And uh, yes, and then you half kill yourselves and we have to fix you. Well, don't blame um, me. I'm a teetotaler. So we've been away for like at least three weeks and nothing much has happened. I must be honest. It's been a very quiet No, weeks. not much. I mean, Zimbabwe deposed the head of state, but it doesn't really matter because they still have Zimbabwe. So. Yeah, there was a protest against farm murders, which was about, then it became about a piece of cloth. Yeah, there was that. Journalists um, were caught lying again. So, yeah, nothing new. Yeah, pretty much uh, status quo. Oh, big news. Big news. Donald Trump drank two sips of water. Impeach him now. Uh, I, I, mean, impeach. I mean, there weren't reasons before, but now… I mean, now, if there's any sign that he's definitely a Russian plant, it's that he drank two sips of water during a press conference. Seriously. Um, yeah, so no, not much, not much going on. Not much going on, which means uh, we, can, we can get straight to our guest for the week. Um, so our guest this week is William Saunderson Meyer. Uh, so since 1993, he's written The Jaundiced Eye, which is SA's longest running current affairs column. It appears in the weekend August, The Independent on Saturday, The Citizen, and on Politics Web. Uh, it got the Caldwell Foundation Award for Fearless Commentary. He's a former visiting journalism fellow at the University of Oxford, holds an MSc management degree from that university, and worked on the Rand Daily Mail and Sunday Tribune, as well as the Financial Times in London. And he's also lectured on journalism for many, many years and currently is a managing editor of Medical Brief uh, and uh, joins us today on the show. Uh, William, well, yes, thank you for joining us. Um, and, and the key question in this podcast particularly is, is journalism is, tra- is changing and we know that. So are we, you know, the ones who want objectivity and truth are out of touch or is everyone else wrong? I, th- I think one has to, journalism is certainly changing, no doubt about that. I think one has to go back to why does it matter that one wants a certain kind of journalism? Good journalism evolved because there is a need for an honest purveyor of views and even more critically of information. Uh, one needs to have information which is accurate and truthful. If you have, especially in a democracy or in any business environment, you need to have clear, factual information on which to make decisions. And certainly democracy can't thrive without truthful journalism. And I think that's that, that in a sense, uh, whatever nostalgia we might have for an era that, that is disappearing, it really does matter. It matters, it matters whether uh, things are ac- accurate and truthful or not. Okay. Um, so the question then comes in is, the, the, you say it matters whether things are accurate and truthful, um, is it always that simple to find out what the truth is? And hasn't the nature in which journalism is now being performed, which is that people are openly partisan, uh, isn't that uh, playing a big role in, 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 in 
in where journalism is going in, in that it doesn't speak about truth necessarily anymore. It speaks about people's opinions of truth. Yes. Um, what we have increasingly is social activism uh, under the cloak of journalism. Um, if the, this whole thing of truth, <coughs> excuse me, um, if, if you look at if you run a newspaper, the essence of your or or any media organization, the essence of your brand is trust. And trust comes from the from the ability to to, people trust you because they believe what you say. There was recently a couple of years back, there was a um, Ipsos Mori poll in the um, in the UK looking at various professions. And um, I'm sure it won't surprise you, but. Journalism came third from last, um, behind government ministers and politicians in general. Um, I mean, journalism was beaten by estate agents and <laughs> and by lawyers. And lawyers, and, yes. And even hairdressers have a, a, a higher higher. Well, you have to trust your hairdresser. With well, it's a dangerous not to. Yes, I guess it's not so dangerous not to trust your um, your, your, your 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 local local reporter. So, I mean, with so that erosion of trust matters. I mean, I, I want to come back to this thing. It really matters in any functioning democratic society, whether the information on which people are making um, decisions is is accurate or not. And it is that thing that you, you know, that, that Jonathan was raising about, in a sense. The gatekeepers. I mean, previously, um, every all mainstream publications act on a gate had a gatekeeper. So, if you wrote a nutty letter to your to your local newspaper, um, the editor secretary or the assistant editor, deputy junior assistant editor in charge of the letter page would be sifting through all the stuff and discarding all. All the nutter stuff would go into the waste paper basket. Um, quite the contrary happens now. The nuttier, the nuttier the um, the view, the more extreme, the more scurrilous, the more abusive it is, the better chance it has of being publication being publicised. So yes, so what you have, as you were saying, you have a, a journalism of um, of contesting truths and. Uh, no umpire. So previously you had an umpire, but that umpire, to some degree, obviously was biased. There's no, there's no perfect objectivity, but certainly there was a striving among journalists to be even-handed, to to in, to follow certain um, moral values. I know moral morals a terrible word to use. It's probably probably outlawed. Um, but there wasn't. There was a sense that that you would follow certain. Uh, kind of precepts of your trade. You know, you would, you would, you try to be factual. You try to be honest. You try to give the other side um, a chance to refute allegations against them. I, I if you look at this, um, I mean, this contesting truths idea, the um, the outing of rapists, alleged rapists, child molesters, actually. The alleged child molesters on public media. Um, it is, and, and the argument for it basically is: well, our systems are, our traditional systems, are so failed that uh, that's the only way to do it. Um, but I mean, the, the the dangers of that are self-evident. So let's let's talk about a local example, and that is Black Monday. 
So for those who are unaware, Black Monday was a, a civil a protest against farm murders. So you had a few thousand people or tens of thousands of people all over the country uh, blocking highways and, and uh, you know, protesting farm murders uh, generally so. And then Nicholas Bauer pops up out of nowhere. But Nicholas Bauer is a journalist at ENCA. I use the term journalist very loosely. And um, he puts up a few tweets with um, pictures of people bearing the old South African flag. And there's only one problem, though. Those pictures were not of the protests on Black Monday. And these pictures are seen by the Minister of Police, who retweets them. It's seen by other government ministers who tweets them. And then the whole story turns from farm murders to these terrible racist white people and their flag. And that is the problem with fake news, really. You can, you can push an agenda as, as a journalist by using fake or doctored images at the time. And so now the whole, the whole point of Black Monday has been lost to a large degree. I think it's a great example because here you have one reporter and uh, not even of a fringe organization of ENCA, uh, which um, positions itself as the voice of, 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 of truth in Africa. And he cuts single-handedly the legs out, out from underneath the Black Monday protests. So as you say, the debate moves not from the grievances of a group of people, you might like them or you might loathe them, but it's nevertheless a fact that they have a four and a half times greater chance of being murdered than does the ordinary South African, which is really a very high chance. In fact, it's interesting. I mean, there are 80, 80 farmers murdered this year and there were so far 54 policemen. There are only 42,000 farmers. I think there must be a couple it's around, of hundred. It's around 200,000 policemen, I think. Yeah. So, um, so a farmer has a better, has, has a, uh, considerably better chance or worse chance, depending on whether you're the farmer or whether you're the, the smug observer from the sidelines in being killed. Uh, so instead of that being the debate, it becomes then about how whites are politically ungrateful and, um, they are ignoring the hand that has, uh, that, that, that has, um, patted them on the head instead of sliced their throat. Um, and, that's one problem. I think the other problem about it is that um, ENCA, which is so quick to be critical of the Guptas and ANN7 and to be scathing of them, and rightly so, um, ENCA fudged it. I mean, they didn't respond to the to the anger of the people who 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 were be, whose portrayal was being um, uh, faked on their public uh, through one of their journalists. Um, they just tried to quietly bury it. And then when it couldn't be buried, eventually old Bauer issued a, um, I thought it was heartfelt, um, uh, uh, certainly long and, um, yes, um, a, a retraction. But mm. is, is that good enough for a reporter on a mainstream publication? Uh, if he were, if he had been in my newsroom, I would have fired him. Um, uh, of course, I only after contract, uh, labor, uh, negotiations, but that, that would be my sense about it. I would have a problem about having a journalist like that on my staff. But on the other hand, I mean, I think the, the saddest part of that really in a way is Bauer himself. I mean, this is a guy, he's, you know, I looked at some of his other stuff, some of his other stuff is great. Um, so he's a, he's a competent, intelligent man and he sees absolutely no problem with 
pushing a political line. Um, and in his, in his uh, apology, he sort of explains it along those lines. He said he felt that, you know, he could advance, um, he was advancing an argument. Um, well, you know, reporting is not advancing an argument. Reporting is an attempt to put a frame around a set of events, a set of events that moves all the time. So it's damn difficult to do that. But to the best of one's ability to do it honestly, yeah, I, I mean, this goes back to what I was alluding to before, what you have, have said, uh, in, in another way. Um, and it's, it's this idea that journalism was once about reporting without fear or favor, um, and is now very much exactly about that. You, you don't seem to get a job at the likes of, uh, the Mail and Guardian or the ENCAs of the world, um, without fear and favor of, particular sides. Um, the international example would be CNN, who are clearly very partisan, clearly sit on the left side of American politics, and Breitbart, who clearly sit on the right side of politics. And neither of them tell the absolute truth. Um, they just tell the truth that their listeners and uh, viewers want to, and readers want to hear. Uh, and it's just about confirmation bias. And in fact, uh, you're correct. If Nicholas Bauer is reporting on a commercial building fire, he will do that uh, very well. There is nothing wrong with his skill and ability to do so because there's nothing usually very political about that. But if you look at who he is as a person, he's unable to separate his left-wing views from his reporting. So as soon as a political element can be thrust into the story, it is. Uh, and this happens, we are picking on Nick a bit, but this happens uh, amongst many reporters. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I, I do. I think Nick's, Nick, Nick's a great person to pick on at the moment because he um, he's <laughs> left himself really open to it. Um, let's take your um, an analogy of a, a fire. Um, you say, well, one could trust his his report because it's it's a, it's essentially a, an apolitical event. But you know, if it's in Johannesburg downtown, um, I'm sure Nick or the likes of Nick will say, well, you know, this is. Um, I'm sure Mashaba is somehow responsible yeah, in, for inner city squalor. Inner city squalor, and um, you know the the huge campaign against uh, foreigners, and uh, almost anything in the world can be contorted into 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 a political um, into a political grievance. Even drinking and, some water at a press conference. <laughs> yes, and falling asleep while you um, while you supposedly doing your resignation speech. Um, <laughs> I think this, uh, you, you use the example of Breitbart and CNN. Um, there's a difference in the sense that CNN purports to be, um, an even-handed news organization, although it clearly and increasingly is taking on a political, a political color. Whereas Breitbart was set up essentially to advance the cause. And I think, I think one, um, one ideally would have liked that, that kind of distinction to remain so that you would you would seek you would su seek your s political support from the sites that um, that that uh, echo your views, but you would actually if you would be able to trust CNN. I mean, increasingly CNN isn't trusted. It's it's not. In fact, it's not trusted by a huge number of people. Uh, the BBC is is is, is facing uh, the same kind of thing. Uh, the, there was a recent article by, I'm trying to remember, um, Robinson, one of the BBC guys, and he was talking about this, and he, he attributes it 
attributed to this increased polarization of society. So as people become more polarized, they are just less and less willing to give space to other people. Um, so maybe it's this, maybe we're in the, and God, we can only hope that that is so, do we in end days, it's society, are we sort of absolutely devolving to sort of mouse eat mouse level? Um, so there is no space, there is no, there is no, there is no sense that one needs to give one's opponent accord them certain courtesies, like um, being polite to them, like listening to their argument and trying to rebut it. Um, and I guess with, if, if you're gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper is now social media, if social media, and social media thrives on the lowest common denominator in a sense, um, Absolutely. so your, gate, your gatekeeper is a screaming, uh, screaming, shrieking banshee, um, which might, might be right-wing or might be left-wing, but it's certainly not interested in the truth. So, William, I mean, here's, here's the question that that I've struggled to 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 answer myself: Who is who or what is responsible for this uh, increased polarization? Does the media create the narrative, or does it just reflect the narrative? Because I, I've I've seen uh, Penny Sparrow is a great example. Some some two-bit retired estate agent said a racist comment on Facebook. Which happens every day over thou, you know, through thousands of Facebook yeah. accounts every single day yeah. in South Africa. But she's picked out and she's dealt with in a highly, you know, vicious way, arguably far more vicious than what she said on Facebook. Um, and media were very happy to gleefully carry on and keep her in the news for months and months and months. Um, so what is your sense on that? Is the, is the, is the narrative created by the media or is it just reflected in the media? Um, it's a, it's a circle, I guess. But let's start on 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 the thing of of media uh, ref, reflecting it. The media, the, as as the media declines in quality, um, it is less and less able to put on on the buffet table a set of dishes which uh, is appetising. So. And if, if you were following, if, if you, and I'm sure you were, you're watching the uh, the events around Mugabe in the past week. I find it incredible how many of the news organisations were, were appealing for any on on Twitter and on social media for anyone in Zimbabwe to please give them some information. Now, again, these are media organisations that pride themselves on on covering Africa, their commitment to Africa, their commitment to, to, to the southern African region, but they don't have they don't have reporters to send. And and often when they do send reporters, they, they are not reporters, they're social activists. Um, they tend to be very young. Um, I saw American research about uh, people in digital newsrooms, the average age is twenty four to to twenty nine and in the old Mainstream newsrooms, it's, uh, sort of, oh, 34 to 30, 39. So, relatively young, relatively inexperienced. Nothing wrong with them being young. I mean, it's quite great that there's all that, that there's this, a new wave, but there, there's a lack of experience. So the, the mainstream media is really picking up stompies from the social media, but it's worse in a way. And that is, uh, let's go back to this thing of, of, Naming and naming people who are supposedly racists, and the one that occurs to me is um, oh Danny Ordan, um, 
I mean, I feel sorry for him just to start with because he really looks like one, doesn't he? I mean, if you, he's got this heavy jowl and um, kind of saggy, seedy look that makes you think he, he is a, he, he's, he's a molester of some kind. I just quite don't know which, what one it is. So I feel sorry for him. I mean, here he has an allegation that actually goes back more than 20 years. Um, but that, in a way, could be dealt with through the whole court system. He could ignore it. He could issue a, a writ for defamation, or he could, uh, on the, or his accuser could, uh, it, uh, it's no longer a criminal case, uh, could, could uh, introduce civil, liti- uh, civil case and claim, claim uh, some form of damages from him. And it could be sorted out, and the, the media could report on the process of that in the way it used to. But instead, it becomes a social media issue. And then even um, incredibly established mainstream publication like Business Day picks up on it. Um, and it wrote the most extraordinary leader at, uh, editorial attacking your dance, saying that um, it's absolutely disgusting that even if he were innocent, that he doesn't want to have a public dialogue about this. Now, whether he's innocent or not, I can't imagine why anyone with the remotest amount of sense would want to have a public dialogue with this banshee, shrill attack from hundreds and thousands of people on social media. It's a, it's a debate he can't possibly win. So, in fact, he did exactly the correct thing to, to, to just shut up. With, whether he's guilty or, or, or innocent, it doesn't matter. But if, uh, here's here's the mainstream media saying, come on, come on, answer it. These are the allegations. Come on. So it's goading him. This is business day. Now, why is it doing it? Either it I mean, I don't know if the editorial writer of business day could really be that thick that they believe, that they truly believe that it's a good idea to settle these issues in the court of public opinion, um, or whether it's just, this is great. This is this is the, this is right back to Roman times. Let's you know, let's have uh, bread and circuses. And while this goes on, the clicks on on the Business Day site, um, you know, mount up, and the debate is. So you have a you you have a circus being curated by a mainstream publication like Business Day. Um, so the media. <laughs> I know it's a very long answer to your to your question, but in a sense. It is a victim of social media, but it also fuels the fire of social media through by pandering to it, and and maybe because it it lacks the resources to put out credible alternative. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that, but I don't think that they're victims any longer. I'm reliably informed that one of our large publications, and I assume this happens across the board because I don't imagine a large newsroom has this and others don't, I'm reliably informed that one of our larger publications has a click counter board uh, in their newsroom which ranks the top five or top ten uh, articles on their uh, website and social media currently receiving the most number of clicks. And that is what is seen as success on a daily basis. So the entire sort of journalistic pool um, can see this in their open plan office. They can see who is succeeding. Um, and success is how many people click on it. So this will explain why, you know, you might write a story about race relations in South Africa, but you, which may be a, 
a very well-written piece, but you would have a headline which is completely inflammatory, either to black people or white people, in, uh, just to create um, sort of anger so that people might click. Uh, and 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 I think I think that you can't describe uh, these newsrooms as victims any longer. And a clear example of that is the Shelley Garland debacle, where uh, well, a friend of ours sent in a fake article about uh, you know uh, renouncing men's white men's right to vote, and the editor yes. defended it as standard feminist theory, and the editor of the blogs. Uh, kept talking about white tears while showing the tick count, the click counter mm. on his on his Twitter timeline, yeah. and then when they found out it was fake, they all you know were left a bit red faced. But that was the whole point. Well, that's the whole point of of working at Huffington Post. It's for the clicks. Yeah, but other new uh, publications, I, I'm told as well. Now, these are, when you when you're referring to these publications, you're talking about mainstream publications. Basically. Oh yes, very much so. This is one of the top uh, media groups in the country. Okay, yeah. I mean, the Garland one is, is, is a great one because it, it just pulls out the sort of, it's difficult, it's very difficult to know whether you're, you're reading, reading satire or whether this is actually the, uh, the serious opinion of someone. And, um, I thought the wonderful part about, about that was the editor, um, launching this, impassioned, misguided, and um, really pathetic academic defense of something which which was which was satire, which was which was which was a joke. Um, that wasn't that the, the great part of it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it's just it's just that the the problem is is you you cannot tell the difference. The reason why that Shelley Garland article was picked up on and why uh, you know, Marxists essentially went, ran with it and loved it was because you, you cannot tell the difference between real articles and satire anymore. If you're just a normal person who's like, why would the New York Times publish an article saying that women had better sex during communism? Um, why would the New York Times publish an article that says Weimar Germany was actually a great place to live? Why, why are they doing this? Um, and, and you, you, you cannot. You're making up those examples, aren't you? I, I am not making up those examples. The Washington Post published and published, has published articles denying that the nuclear family is a good idea and saying that it is in fact racist and privileged. Yeah. Uh, these well, are these are the top publications in the world that are publishing what should be satire, um, and and the truth is is if you go read the Onion, which is good satire, yeah. uh, you, some of the articles are very difficult to to separate from reality. Uh, the Onion published an article not too long ago about. When I get caught out, I'm a white male feminist, and when I get caught out for sexual assault, I'm going to give the best apology. Um, you, you know, that's, it sounds like satire, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, doesn't that then come back to something we were speaking about earlier about, um, we live, we live in a society which is increasingly, a world that's increasingly polarized, and that, um, the Zeitgeist is, it's not a robust one. Um, I mean, just despite despite these uh, angry cleavages, um, we we have a kind of political correctness which says, well, if it's unpalatable and or impolite, um, it, it has to be processed and repackaged and you know made into a, into a euphemism that is 
that is um, acceptable to people. And maybe that's one of the attractions that so and one of the one of the great advantages social media has is in a way it cuts through, it strips through a lot of that. But um, it is it is pretty much run from a, to a large degree from a certain political point of view. Certainly in South Africa, I mean South Africa. It has become a moral and political guardian of any of any wrong speak and uh, woe betide. I'm sure Ramon uh, experiences all the time uh, anyone who crosses that line. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do it on purpose, if I'm honest. It's, it's, no, it's, no, no. It's, it's you fun. do it because you believe it. <laughs> well, yes, but I know that it will give a rise. You know, it will give uh, it will raise the heckles of people, and uh, I like to make idiots feel uncomfortable. It's, I think it's it's one of my duties. As a citizen of this country, to do so, um, I actually had a question, but I completely forgot about it. Well, um, we talk talk about it's, it's a very professional podcast. Talk, this, talk about, as, as you can see, very professional of us. Talk, talk about wrong speak is 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 you know you you like to insult Beyonce online. I mean that's just completely unacceptable. Um, but it's 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 quite interesting. We talk about the polarization. I'm I'm just you've been in journalism for a long time. Um, and you've worked in, in very professional settings and, and settings that take themselves very seriously as well. Um, it seems to me that, you know, very often in the online debate, which really is where, where it's happening now, there, there's very seldom uh, sort of real life uh, events that are taking place um, where there's, there's different parties at least. It, does it seem to you like we've lost the ability to give ground? So I, I don't know if, if 20 or 30 years ago, I wasn't really paying that much attention. I don't know if 20 or 30 years ago, if someone made a really good argument that, for example, was a relatively right-wing argument, if left-wingers would turn around and go, well, actually, that's not a bad argument, and these are the good points of it that I agree with. Has it, has it always been polarized like this, or is it, is, is it worse? I think I think society I think the world's always been polarized. I think what certainly has changed in the past ten years, particularly, is the the the, the, the nature of the discourse, of the tone of the discourse. In fact, in the sense it's become far more brutal and abusive. Um, and again, it's a thing of gate, gatekeeping. Um, uh, if you if you twenty years ago. Called your screamed at a public meeting, you twat and uh, you know up, up, up your up, up your backside. It it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't reach a wider audience than than the people in that hall. Um, now it's endlessly and instantly rebroadcast and and feasted upon. And so the cleavage that was there is is just is made. Is made more obvious, and maybe when you make these things more obvious, um, may, maybe you encourage it. I mean, I do think this. I mean, I don't think anyone was ever convinced by the argument of their, or very rarely is anyone convinced by the argument of their opponent. But it is the duty of a newspaper to to reflect both sides of that argument. Um, I mean, I think it is in our human, in our nature, we we would rather believe. Something that chimes with us emotionally, than to deal with the emotional stress of um, of, of something which contradicts our views. Um, I think the, the Richard Gingras, the head of Google, put it nicely. He said, um, "You know, the key challenge that social media poses to to the old media is that 
Uh, affirmation is more satisfying than information. So it's actually far more satisfying to, 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 to hear words spoken that, that support you, that bolster your views than it is to, to hear something that contradicts your view. But, but the ultimate irony in a way is that people on social media, i.e. the younger generation, don't necessarily read traditional media. Yet, traditional media bases their slant or their editorial policy on social media, which is not at all representative of this country in any way. I think you've got, what, 10% of the population on social media? So it seems a bit like a losing strategy to 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 try and entice people who don't read you at all um, to read you. Uh, it's a bit like the DA problem, right? The, the DA is very quick to, to defend itself against any allegations of racism or things like that by the very people who will never vote for them anyway. That's, that's, yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, mainstream me- media, certainly in South Africa, is just hanging on by the skin of its, uh, yeah, by, 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 by the nails. Um, so whether it's going, I mean, and that's perhaps why it is going the social media route. It doesn't have the resources to, to, to do proper research. I believe, I believe there's always a need for truth. So publications like the Financial Times, like the New York Times, um, I would have said Business Day in South Africa. I'm not entirely sure that that's, that, that's true. But there is, there is, there is a role. There's always a role for a serious media. I mean, I think readers need it. I mean, readers want to be able to go to a place that they know that this, that they can believe what they read. Um, but as, as Ian C.A. has shown us with Bauer, you can't always believe what you read. In fact, there's um, research in the, in the U.S. There's some really lovely research that um, 75, 70, more than 70% of reporters say that they source, and this is mainstream, paper, mainstream publications in the United States, saying that they source their material from social media. Um, but one, only one in ten of journalists actually uses the tools that exist in social media to try and check out whether the things are are accurate or truthful or whether it's just complete invention. Yeah, Which is why we have BBC using the quoting the ZANU PF. That's right. Fake Twitter account. There was there was this great story about someone working in Bud in Buzzfeed in New York City, yeah. and he was sent for the first time in his career to Detroit. To, to work on a story of sorts. And the local, uh, he had his local contact in Detroit wrote, a, uh, wrote uh, he had a YouTube video and he said, this guy from BuzzFeed in New York comes to Detroit wearing a bulletproof vest. <laughs> it's like, it's like going to, I don't know, it's like going to the middle of Santon, uh, and never going there, and, you know, as a reporter and wearing a bulletproof vest to like a normal American city. That's how out of touch these people were. So he was believing, he, he was believing his own, his own created world in a sense. Well, the, I mean, the, the whole job is sitting at your desk in front of your MacBook, going through social media and then writing the 10 greatest things about Beyonce or whatever the case might be. I mean, people could spend $40,000 and four years of their life in college to, to write this absolute shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't see how it's going to, Get any better? Um, well, I sort of, hope, I sort of hope it doesn't, to be honest, because it gives us. I mean, we we classified as alternative media, but we're not. We're just a podcast who likes to have conversations. We're not trying to be objective in any way, uh, but it gives us a bit more space to 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 not become mainstream by any means, but to, to well, be an alternative. It, it does. It does sort of 
hark back to what you were saying with regards to the differences between something like CNN and Breitbart. Uh, we, we, uh, we're very honest and open about where we stand on things. So there's an honesty to that. Um, yes. and, and I think we've seen recently in South Africa, for example, you know, CNN still trying to pretend like they are, you know, they're an apple, not a banana. That was the advert recently. Um, and then right after they released that advert, they did something that was completely fake news. Um, but, but so they're still trying to do that. A lot of the news media are trying to do that. I think something like Fox News has always been very open and honest, even in some of their stupidity, that they are on the right. They said they, they you know, they, they, they're very blunt about it. Um, I think we've been very blunt about our, our where we stand on, on certain issues. The problem is, is you have a paper like the Sunday Times who claims that they're not partisan in any real way. Uh, and then they're caught out uh, with the SARS rogue unit issue. Uh, you have a deputy editor of the Daily Maverick now employed uh, at the Times again, or the Sunday Times, or whatever the new name of that group is, uh, Ranjeni Munsami, uh, who who've, who pretended to be neutral on all these issues and comes out as uh, having run PR for Jacob Zuma um, and is a very staunch ANC uh, acolyte. So the reality is, is I think that I think the issue with the trust comes in is there's no honesty. If if you want to be a left wing publication, be a left wing publication. Uh, to the credit of something like Huffington Post, they're not pretending to be anything else than a left wing publication. I think there's nothing wrong with being a left wing or a right wing publication. I think the the, um, the, the space the space for growth. For an organization like yourselves, uh, entity like yourselves, or, or any uh, online thing, is though surely at the end of the day truth. I mean, if it's it's not it's not the stance or the point of view that matter. There've always been uh, papers to the left and papers to the right. Um, the difference was that previously uh, they would not it would uh, the, it would not be tolerated that you invented things, you lied to your public. Um, firstly, it would be inconceivable to most journalists of, it, of, of an earlier generation to do that, and certainly uh, there were enough there were enough layers for, for that not often to happen. Um, the difference is that those layers have been stripped out, and so if you, I mean, if you look at the South African the South African political um, world as it's reflected in the papers, it isn't. It's not the business days reading it or the stars reading on it or, or Victoria News. Is. It, it is um, either from the Ramaphosa camp or from um, uh, Damini Zuma's camp. Uh, yeah. So we have reporters who are actually just running um, Narr contests. narratives and agendas. Yes. Um, yes. Streams of propaganda. Um, and and that, that's a huge change. Um, so it, it, I don't think there's anything wrong with an ideological point of view. Um, I mean, Munasami, for instance, I think her her period at um, the Zuba Foundation was after she left newspapers. Um, so, and I don't think it matters. If, if in, 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 in a, um, it sounds really, I mean, you know, I'm sort of really betraying my age now when I sort of in my day type of statement, but uh, uh, I had a, a newsroom which had um, a couple of people in whom I was pretty certain were on the payroll of the, of the security police. I always 
was suspicious of our military correspondent in any publication that I, that any newspaper that I worked for, because the military correspondents were close to, and they had to get security clearance. And frankly, a journalist who can get security clearance worries me just to start with. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that, so you would have that one part of a newsroom. And then I had at least three people in the, in the one bureau who, um, I just assumed that they were ANC supporters. Um, and I was fine with that. And so was my editor, who was quite a conservative man, because we, we, it, it, it was a, a different stream of information, a useful stream of information. And if we had doubts about it, we wouldn't use it. And if we didn't, we did use it. Um, afterwards, one of these guys uh, came out. Um, he went on to become a pub, uh, editor of a South African weekly, which, which remained nameless, um, and came out very proudly and said that he was an underground agent for the ANC to infiltrate the media. And I just thought afterwards, well, you might have thought you were underground, but I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to everyone else where your, where your, um, sympathies lay. So, I mean, maybe he managed to do some enormous coup that remains, um, unrecognized to this day. But frankly, your, your, your the greatest strength of any, of any public is the ability to, to weave together different narratives and present it in a way that that most of its readers will recognize something approximating the truth. Um, so it's great to have different views, and it doesn't matter if people are ideological, but it does matter if you don't have any quality control mechanisms to try and sift out their ideology, or if, like Bauer, they actually have an agenda that they want to advance. Yes. Look, I, I, I agree with you. I think the person being ideological is, well, it's almost impossible to to avoid. I, People have uh, associations with uh, different bodies and peop and other people. Uh, they have beliefs, so you're never going to get away from that. But it's it's when a, a, an entire organisation becomes completely ideological and rejects anything that's outside of their ideology. That's when you kind of you're not really getting anything very valuable from them. And certainly, people who will like them will believe that ideology. But you're not picking up anyone else. Is that fair? Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's it, how are journalists selected nowadays? I really don't know. Um, I haven't been, I haven't been teaching journalism for, a, I haven't taught journalism for many years, but I mean, what, what I would always want in any newsroom, I want people who are skeptical. I mean, I think that's the most, most critical. It's, 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 it's the most critical, um, quality in a journalist because it makes you distrustful of any point of view, um, and you you interrogate things. So I, I want someone who's uh, skeptical, someone who has an antipathy towards authority, um, while recognise that there's a need for authority, that there needs there are, there's a need for rules and laws, but at the same time very skeptical about the people who enforce those rules and laws, and that there isn't an absolute truth. Um, I find it so surprising how how many journalists seem to believe that their particular point of view of the world is somehow it's almost an article of faith to which we we need to be converted, and if we don't, well, we'll be sort of metaphorically beheaded. And that's nothing against the Muslims. 
<laughs> just had to throw it in there. Um, I mean, I think your criteria for being a good journalist is, is a criteria for being like a relatively good citizen in a liberal democracy, you know, doubtful of power, skeptic about claims, um, things to that effect. I mean, I think that that's what makes good citizens in a, you know, good democracy, so to speak. But um, I actually want to talk to you about the, the this phenomenon of fake news uh, that Donald Trump has uh, thankfully brought to the fore by calling the, you know CNN fake news, and people are really worried that people are unable to differentiate between so-called real news and so-called fake news, um, except for the fact that fake news is the oldest form of news the world has ever known. I mean, the code of ethics around journalism only came about uh, during the First World War, somewhere around there, 1920s. I think yeah. before that you had hundreds of, of, of publications, uh, pamphlets, books, uh, you know, who, who, and, and there was no editorial control. So you had outright racists, you had, um, Karl Marx. Yeah. I mean, so fa- <laughs> fake propaganda has been around since, since humans have been around. So I, I'm not sure why the obsession with fake news is now a problem all of a sudden. I think it's a lovely comparison because you're absolutely right. Um, so what, 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 I mean, in, in the 1800s, uh, well, even before that, but I'm just thinking of, of the published media in Britain. That was exactly it. The pamphleteers and tracteers and uh, all taking their different points of view and presenting them as a truth, which is in a sense what, what you're saying is happening now. Um, and that's why there was a need for newspapers that would do something differently. So I think it's always going to be a market for truth. I, I think the problem is that uh, there's still a market for truth. I think the problem with, with with our papers, specifically in South Africa, but it's not only in South Africa, is that um, they're not willing to put the money in to to attract those readers. So they they basically are republishing the tracts and the pamphlets and the and the yellow journalism. Um, and expecting people to pay for them. Well, why the hell would you pay for something that you can get absolutely free of charge in enormous quantities the moment you switch on your computer? Um, but nevertheless, there is a commercial model for good journalism. Um, and maybe advertisers will be forced to find that. If you look at um, MultiChoice now saying, well, ANN7 is going to disappear off its bouquet, um, it's a response to – now, it depends why it's doing it. Is it a response to, to political pressure or is it a response to a commercial pressure? I think it's in a sense of commercial pressure. Because people see uh, the Gupta TV station as, as, as purveying, in a sense, fake news. So um, that's quite a good thing. So there's a, com- there's a commercial pressure for truth, um, and that's they, – they want casualty of it. Um, I just don't know whether it's going to carry through and how. I mean, I think the market for truth is quite a small one, sadly. Yeah, I, I mean, even that ANN7 collapse is, is not necessarily a market for truth. It's just an agenda. So, you know, there's a group of people who are have been driven to, to target everything Gupta, uh, for the past yeah. six months or so, since more revelations have come out about what they've done. Um, I'm, I'm not laying judgment on that one way or another, but, but many of the people involved in that process 
are selective, number one, over who they will go after and who they won't um, in yeah. terms of who's been involved because – <laughs> the the involvement is massive. Uh, you you cannot run at the type of organisation and and basically the country, uh, like the Guptas have run um, and captured, uh, without involving yeah. every single sector uh, completely. Yes. Um, and so so you know it's they're very selective. That's the one side. Um, and the other side is is that they are pushing an agenda because if you look at some of the people and many of the prominent people involved in the movement, they are politically affiliated and, and very vocal about their political affiliations. You know, you've got Save South Africa on one side, which are uh, essentially uh, people trying to desperately save the ANC before it implodes uh, because – they don't believe any other party should run this country. Uh, and then you've got uh, the EFF who are just trying to rattle the ANC so that they'll drop below the 50% so the EFF can finally have a semblance of relevance in this country. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it, so I, I, I'm not convinced there's, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, a searching for truth there, uh, to be honest, although we might get some truth as a side effect. I'm interested in that for, for obvious reasons, the journalists, because on the one hand, I think it's great that they're dropping them because what you have is clearly uh, uh, a dishonest organization, uh, which is a propaganda organization, which is massively funded. But on the other hand, I feel, well, um, if you, ha- you have every right to, to, to put your view forward, what, what, what I don't like is having to, to pay for that part, particular part of the bouquet, if I say. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's the free market and I've got no issue with the pressure being put on DSTV. Although I did hear an interesting theory that, uh, DSTV, you know, they're terminating it next year sometime, uh, which yes. gives them plenty of time to, to, to finalize whatever financial dealings need to be finalized. And the one theory was that, uh, uh, multi-choice or DSTV bought the entire SABC archive and that, uh, this was merely uh, their way of paying off the Guptas for having arranged said um, sort of oh. buyout. Um, and so by the time June comes out, they just will have settled the contract. Yes, yes. Uh, so ANN7 A&N was always going to go. It was just it was just uh, a front for, lo- for money laundering, essentially. That's also another... Uh, oh, sorry, William, go ahead. No, sorry, it was just something uh, that you, you, you were speaking of earlier about this, this problem of, of, of this, or, or you were saying it's not a problem, is the identification of fake news is there was a um, a study done at Stanford um, using its history department and history students. So using the history academics and history students and exposing them to two sets of information um, about pediatrics um, and both absolutely uh, the two organizations. One is the, I think one is the American Pediatric Society, which is sort of the mainstream established one. And then there's the American Society of Pediatrics, which is a, a kind of a activist or a, it's certainly a, an issue driven group um, seen to be, I guess, probably on the right, uh, anti-abortion. And and, um, and they expose these students and a set of professional fact checkers um to the two websites to try and to see whether they could distinguish which was which was fake news and which wasn't. And what was interesting is the the, the fact checkers actually managed quite well, but only half of the academics could could distinguish fake news from from real news. 
and only a fifth of the students could. So a fifth of, of, of Stanford University's faculty in history doesn't know the difference between fake news and, and real news. Um, and there were, two, there were two aspects to it. I mean, the one was the thing was just simply that fact checkers are more skeptical uh, about what they see. Uh, and they're also more skeptical about themselves. So they don't believe that they necessarily have a set of knowledge which is immutable and unchallengeable. And the other thing was that the academics and the students, when they looked at try to establish fake news, they would just drill deeper into the website. They would look at uh, the domain registration and the logo used and stuff like it, whereas um, the people who were successful at distinguishing the fake news were the people who would go to other websites and compare. And that seems so. That seems to be so obvious to me that that, that is what one would do. Um, I find it incredible that, that a highly intelligent, skilled, and privileged part of American society lacks that kind of basic ability. It's like it's like sending someone out into the world and and you know they don't know how to feed themselves. Well, I mean, are, are they that intelligent then, William, if they cannot differentiate? I mean, sometimes I get caught out by a parody, you know, Twitter account. And then I say after the fact, oh, it's a parody account. I got caught out. Um, but um, I actually did want to ask a question, and I forgot again. Losing your mind. Yes, be professional you on the show. Your, it's just you. I'm we professional. I'm very <laughs> just professional. putting it out there <laughs> completely. Um, William, just uh, just in terms of – the, the sort of current setup, I, I know you, you're still involved in, in journalism, uh, but you, you're quite niche, if I'm not mistaken now. I, of you, you write your column, which is, which, which yeah. is, is well sort of syndicated. Is that the correct word? Yeah, I guess so. Mm. Um, and, uh, sort of that, that'll, that'll be general sort of politics and society stuff. Um, and then you're also involved in, in the medical brief. Uh, which I, which I, which I read, um, quite often. Um, I, I saw, I saw you had quite a lot to say about the NHR recently, or your, your, your publication did. Um, how do you, how do you sort of see, you know, the, the sort of journalistic industry going from now? And we've had a long conversation about all the problems and, and all the issues in newsrooms with journalists and, and, and agendas and narratives and, and propaganda. Um, are we, uh, are we, are we just going to sort of kind of descend into niche elements like what you're sort of involved in now? Or do you think that we'll be able to resurrect once great media organizations and, and, and the trust in those organizations? You know, for me, the niche thing has worked incredibly well. Um, before Medical Brief, about around 2000, and it was really just, without being boastful, it was just starting this idea of aggregating information. But um, in, in our case, aggregating it through through human editors. Um, and we established a publication called Legal Brief Today, which was a subscription-based and is a subscription-based thing. Uh, since day one, people were have paid for it, and it reaches about 70% of lawyers and, and jurists in South Africa. Um, I've sold it ages ago. It's owned by Juta. And it's a very, very a financially successful publication uh, using using the advantages that, that online media give us, the ability to aggregate information from a, a range of sources. Uh, but the critical thing is it's, um, it's not the kind of aggregation that most newsletters do uh, in that 
the, there's a, a human intervention. So it'll say um, the judgment said the constitutional court judgment said that the response from uh, from the citizens analysis is this, this response from business day is that. But on the other hand, you know, so it'll it'll try and weave it together. Yeah. And I, I only use that as an example because I think again there is a value add that is always saleable if. The way you do it is credible. So if you can avoid the fake news and if you can put it together in an even-handed way for people to trust, I think there is a market for it. But both of those markets I'm referring to, or, or however profitable they are, are niche markets. Um, Maverick tries to do that in a kind of vague way, but it's really all opinion and it's all – it's. Um, you don't see a lot of opinion there across a ra- uh, an ideological spectrum range. Um, it used to be, but they have narrowed it a lot in the last few years. Now, I don't understand why. Um, well, remember the Daily Maverick started off as, as the publication for people with brains and money. That was their yeah. actual motto. Um, okay. And, and at some point, they decided to abandon I don't know the brains. Um, maybe the money was coming from elsewhere, uh, but 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 certainly there was a very w- wide variety when they started. Uh, I think the only variety that remains now is someone like Ava Vechter. Um, other yeah. than that, um, you know, you, you you know what you're getting from, at the Daily Maverick. You, you certainly do. absolutely. So what what you had is a publication that was, uh, which I think has has a um, has a model. Which really could be successful, um, but I think it's squandering it a bit. But on the other hand, maybe maybe it's it could be a kind of South African Breitbart type thing eventually. Um, but uh, that uh, that it still doesn't answer Roman's question: is is there any is there any possibility of uh, you know good media coming out of what we sit in? Good traditional media from what we're, where we're sitting now, and. Um, until advertising flows, until advertising makes a choice to support quality as opposed to just the clicks. Mm. So, so to choose to follow the, the brains instead of the shots, um, yeah, it's not going to happen. I actually remembered what I wanted to ask you, William. <laughs> um, yeah, a bit delayed reaction there. Um, generally speaking, why is there no real right-wing conservative mainstream publication in South Africa. Uh, don't you find that a bit strange? It's almost like 70% of the country is just not represented in mainstream media because uh-huh. many people in this country are Christian conservatives, actually. You'll never know that, but they are. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I mean, I suppose in a sense there is a, there is a further to the right than you see in English language media is in the Afrikaans language media. So report and built and the burger to some degree reflect uh, a reality which is to the right of what is the South African center. And the South African center, of course, has moved left anyway. Um, so the left is incredibly well reflected, but the Anglophone right isn't really well, at well, all. Uh, I mean, I, I would, uh, adding to Ramon's point, uh, perhaps the the Afrikaans right is is relatively well reflected, but um, I, I, I could argue that the the right side of of for want of a better for want of a better description the black population is not reflected. Uh, you know, Ramon's point stands there as well. Uh, these yes. these are 
factually relatively socially conservative people this is the reason why we don't have referenda on things like gay rights abortion etc because they would lose they would lo- capital punishment they would capital we would have capital punishment we would lose gay rights and we would lose abortion rights um so, or it's very likely we would lose those rights, put it that way. Um, and that means that at least 50% of this country has relatively, look, those are religious right views. Um, and, and I, I think there is a split happening amongst the right because I consider myself on the right, but I, I don't have right wing views on those issues. Um, but that said, I think the traditional, um, person in South Africa probably does. Uh, and I don't see them being represented in, in, in that. Maybe I don't consume that media. So I, I don't listen to something like a Corsi FM. So I, I don't know what they're saying there. Um, and I don't watch SAPC pretty much on principle, but, but, um, it doesn't seem like there is representation of, of that body of people either. No, I think actually you're right. There's a huge, there's a huge commercial opportunity there. Uh, you, you need to rework your format. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ramon must start speaking Zulu and I'll go with the Sutu or the Kosa. No, it can be Anglophone. I think <laughs> if you look at uh, the demographics you, you describe are absolutely right. Um, very, very large percentages of the colored and Indian community are conservative. I think uh, very large proportions of, of, of the white community are conservative, but they have kind of been shamed into a silence, and, and there, isn't, there, isn't a, there isn't a medium in which where they can um, express their views without being held down as being unrepentant racists. Um, and the two, the two are equated. So if, 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 you are, if you're anti-abortion uh, or religious uh, of any kind, the, the you know, the your social conservatism is seen as a as a as a stalking horse for uh, for for political conservatism. Yeah, well, the, the, it's almost as if uh, people and journalists want to criminalise fifty percent of the country's political ideology. That's how bad it has become. You can't have a, a normal debate about abortion. You can't write a letter to the editor and say abortion is wrong for these reasons. Uh, you'll be crucified. I, yeah, you would be. I think. I think you're wrong about the 50%. I think it's more than 50%. Well, sorry, sure. More. Uh, we're being, I, I, we're being I, conservative. I mean, it's very conservative. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you think that 82% of South Africans proclaim themselves to have a religious belief, and um, I mean, that's often, I mean, religious belief often is accompanied with relatively conservative views on social issues like abortion, capital punishment, uh, gay rights. Um, yeah, it's... Um, so what you're talking about is the, the, spect- the spectrum of information in South Africa is an incredibly narrow one. Um, I hadn't really thought right. of it before, but yeah, I, that, you're absolutely it, right on that. And, and I think I think I don't want to get it bogged down in in those social issues because I don't think humans will ever come to agreement on abortion, for example. Um, and and so sometimes these debates they're not pointless. It's interesting to have them, but 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 you're just going to have to accept that. Unfortunately, you're never going to get a hundred percent of agreement. Um, but it seems more interesting to me that because a large group of South Africans are conservative in their views, uh, things like economics and the way they view economics would also be relatively conservative, even if they didn't understand the, the, the fundamentals behind it. Um, and that's also not being represented either. Well, 
social media doesn't reflect a voting reality. That's why EFF sits at 7% as mm. opposed to, you know, the 60% of sound, of sound it, it, it creates in, 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 in the political stratosphere. I, if you look at um, someone, uh, it's not only, I'm trying to say, it's not only a South African uh, issue. If you look at someone like Rhys Mogg in, in, in the UK, who is a social conservative, um, staunch Catholic, anti-abortion, I mean, he cannot actually articulate those views in British society without being um, mocked mercilessly. So uh, if, if you have those kinds of – there are views it, – it, it, is, it, is, it is a fiction that spreads beyond our, beyond our narrow borders. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, especially by the same people who preach about equality you know, at every single occasion, except equality of, of ideas, then, then it's a problem, of course. Then it's violence. And, and, and just to interject, uh, if you haven't seen Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, he is, whether you agree with his views or, or not, is really beside the point. Uh, I, I've, I've seldom seen someone uh, debate and have a discussion in uh, such a brilliant and genial manner as, as he does. Uh, he recently was on BBC's Hard Talk, and it's on YouTube. I, I well recommend uh, going and oh, having a look at that. Um, because as you say, uh, William, he, they do go after his views. And the interesting thing about him and, and what I think, uh, you know, the average person is starting to kind of get into is I don't necessarily have to agree with someone on everything. And, and th- that's a point he actually makes. I, I, he, he, for example, makes a point that he's against abortion but that doesn't mean that everyone has to be against abortion it's his personal views and he wants to live that way um but he also states that he will never put in a law for for uh or against abortion because he's the british public have voted already on the matter my personal opinions does not reflect the policies i will implement Um, but 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 people like him seem to be very important in the in the sort of discussion that's happening uh whether you agree with their views or not, I mean, I disagree with a lot of his Catholic views, uh, but I find listening to him fascinating and the way he's able to deal with the mockery, as, as you, you put it. I mean, the, the, the people interviewing him are, are incredulous when they ask a politician in 2017. They even say it sometimes. It's 2017, Mr. Mogg. Um, you know, don't you think, don't you think it's, it's well past the time where you should be against abortion? You know, they say things like that as if, you know, as, as if his 2,000-year-old religious beliefs must be as progressive as they are. And that is why he's the favorite to replace Theresa May. Well, it's true, though. <laughs> it should be very interesting. That's true. So, so it just goes to show how, how many people does how many people actually agree with his views. I would suggest quite a few in England. I mean, they're not all pro-abortion or all, all pro-gay rights and... And uh, so a lot of, the, and that's what happens. As, that's the Donald Trump phenomenon. People who've never been represented in mainstream media just come out and vote with their conscience on the day. And then there's a black swan and everyone's outraged and everyone's excited and everyone's horrified. And uh, then, they, then they question why. And, and, and the answer is always, well, it's racism or it's anti-Mexican. I think white supremacy is the current. Right. Uh, but it's never about maybe we haven't represented these views adequately as the media. I think it's um, the, the, the scenario you, you, you draw there is is really interesting in a, in a South African context because what is a huge social conservatism which um, is sitting there untapped, unused. Um, the IFP occasionally managed to tap into it. I think um, 
but um, no one else tries to because the the political the the parameters in with, with, when, within which our political debate take place are are run by social activist journalists who say, well, these are self apparent truths that. Um, that these, that these social values are, are silly values, and we, we, we cannot we cannot give them space because they are so they are so old fashioned and so outrageous that it would be like allowing the Nazis equal time. I mean, that's where we that's where you get to the social. That's the kind of what social journalism boils down to is that eventually anyone who disagrees with you is just so outrageous that they should not be allowed space to speak. And it is such so much the antithesis of what true journalism should be about: their willingness to give someone else uh, a space to speak. Yeah, well, we can't agree more. I mean, that's what this platform is about. We've had communists, journalists, even politicians, mind you, onto the, on, on here. And uh, it's all been congenial. It's quite amazing what, what you can do when people just speak to each other like human beings. So journalism, or well, journalists rather, listen to William, just treat people like humans. <laughs> what well, except for politicians, I don't think they qualify as humans entirely. Well, they're, they're sort of like a subspecies. We don't Aren't say lizards. We don't say that to their faces. <laughs> <laughs> we can get into a conspiracy theory podcast another time, um, and then we can sell vitamins as well, um, like Infowars. Right, William, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It was a great chat, and and I feel like we could go on for quite a while, but unfortunately, we've got to vacate studio quite soon. So, um, we'll have to do it again sometime. Great. It's very nice to be there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Speak Chat soon. soon. Cheers, eh? Ramon, so uh, we've had a quite a couple of uh, discussions about journalism. That was, that was quite interesting. Well, yes. Um, from a veteran. Yes, from a veteran himself who, who worked under apartheid while trying to undermine it as a, as a journalist. Uh, so that's the interesting part. Here, people don't even act like they're skeptical of the government. They're just like, yes, Everything you do is great, except for just depends who runs well, it. Well, isn't of that perfectly reflected in uh, Zimbabwe right now? Yay, Robert Mugabe's gone. His entire apparatus and his political party, their views, their decision making, everything is still there. But Robert Mugabe's gone. What a what a victory, Ramon. Of course, because it's about the the cult of personality. It's not the system; it's the man. Same with Zuma. Zuma's not the problem. He's just the symptom. Absolutely. The, 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 the problem is the system, the, the, the state owning, state owning enterprise, the state owning racialism, the state owning, uh, you know, color deployment. The, all these things created Zuma, you know, as he was just exploiting it. So kudos to him. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it's just a cult of personality, what else do you, what else do you expect from, from people writing about it? Absolutely. All right. So, uh, that's the end of the show for the week. Uh, we hope you've been enjoying the shows we've had coming up. Just to let you know, a couple more shows, and then we're going to be taking a break in middle of December. Uh, if you want to find our guest today on Twitter, it's at the jaundiced eye. Uh, you can find his uh, columns regularly. Just Google him. He's very, uh, very easy to find online. Some really acerbic, but uh, quite pointed takes on uh, on the narrative and the agenda happening in our society. Yeah, he's got a great column uh, which I read on Politics Web personally. So yeah. if you don't buy if you don't buy newspapers, uh, Politics Web is where you can find it. Uh, find it every Sunday. Yeah, and as I say, Google him because there's lots of back sort of issues that I would recommend reading. 
And uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore report. Join us on Facebook for a good discussion. We'll catch you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Central.com.